the lie the poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where would we be where would we be welcome to the state of the theory podcast i'm hannah and i'm an india and we are your theory doctors Welcome back. Hi there. Hope you've all been well. This is episode 52. It is episode 52. Wow. Mm. Didn't think we'd last this long, did you? <laughs> I didn't think we'd last three episodes. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, we're, we're very grateful for people continuing to listen. Yes, we are. Yes. Um, so what are we talking about today? Today and next week, this is a two-parter yeah. uh, on super nerdy stuff. Um, and topics that we like both as academics mm. but also as uh, nerdy people. Yes. We're doing what we're calling historical tourism. Uh, we're talking about a few different elements of um, and examples of uh, tourist sites and tourist activities and experiences that deal with the past in some yeah. way. Um, this week we're talking more about the politics of historical tourism and the relationship between the past and the present and next week we're going to talk about uh, the economy and the political economy of historical tourism and the mm. transition from industrial spaces to post-industrial tourism mm. consumer yeah. spaces yeah. so where should we begin well quite over, literally where are we beginning <laughs> over the over the two episodes we're going to talk mention a number of specific attractions uh, some of which you've been to, some of which I've been to. So none of which we have any uh, economic connection no. to. No, I mean we've we've paid to go there. We've paid to go there. Other than that, you know, we aren't being sponsored by any of them. Um, but so some of it will be. Will, some of these two episodes will involve you describing your experiences to me and me describing my experiences to you, as it were. Uh, but we'll start with the one place that we've both been to, which is Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia. Um, do you want to, for our listeners who don't know, do you want to explain quite how bizarre a place Colonial Williamsburg is? Yeah, Colonial Williamsburg is like a is like a nonprofit Disneyland for American history nerds. It's basically a living colonial town in Virginia, uh, based in Williamsburg, which is now a bigger a bigger place, um, and it recreates a few of the streets and businesses and activities and quite literally the space of, of colonialism in, yeah. in the United States. So, you know, on the streets you, you'll see people walking their dogs and people going to work and people in 17th century costume. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's as if the town itself has become the museum. Yeah, and it is. It's a living museum. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's run by a nonprofit. Uh, it's the nonprofit itself is is uh, experiencing some financial hardship. Yeah, um, it's been in kind of you know local mm. news, not mm. really mainstream news. It's mm. something that I'm really sad about. I think Colonial mm. Williamsburg is is more interesting mm. than it gets credit for. Mm. Uh, I also think, and we'll talk more about this, that the politics of Colonial Williamsburg is more nuanced and complicated yeah. than. Uh, it that, gets credit yeah. for, and, and certainly much. Um, you know, it's it's always described as the Disney 
Fication of American history, and I, I don't think either of us think it is. Yeah, I think it's much more, much more interesting than that. Yeah, and uh, I have an affinity for it as a, a kind of uh, historical geographer yeah. as well. Do you want to explain when you first went and your experiences? Well, uh, so my mom and I have always traveled together. We've done some interesting trips together, and, and once I was kind of a, a bit older. Uh, we started doing regular trips, just me and her. We'd always talked about going to Colonial Williamsburg. It's kind of a weird thing. I don't think every, not sure every American kid grows up talking to their mom about like the day when they'll get to go to Colonial Williamsburg. Uh, but I was that kid. And uh, my mom and I had sort of discussed it and we're from California and it's not really a place that you fly across the country just to, to go to. So when I was in college in New York, um, we met in Colonial Williamsburg for a long weekend, yeah. and it was awesome. Like it was yeah. still one of the best trips we've done together. Yeah. And my mom and I travel all over the place, mm. and we stayed in a bed and breakfast. The bed and breakfast was run by a couple, mm. and the man was also one of the proprietors of one of the pubs mm. in Colonial mm. Williamsburg. So he had two jobs, as mm. it were. Uh, they're mostly volunteers mm. who work in the place, so he did it as a like hobby, yeah. um, and also as you know part of his his work as a member of the community. Um, and we did the full thing. You go; it's kind of like Disneyland. You, mm. you stand in line and you pay for tickets, and you buy a certain you can buy a certain number of days mm. passes. Mm. Um, they also have other ticketed activities that are either more a little kind of add-on cost mm. or are free yeah. but you have to you have to get a ticket yeah. to go to them um when we were there we did i remember specifically we did a witch trial mm. we participated in a witch trial mm. um we went to two of the pubs mm. and we did uh what other extra performances did we do we did a storytelling evening as well I think it was ghost stories because we mm. were there just after Halloween mm. or over Halloween weekend. Mm. So we did a ghost story yeah. storytelling yeah. tour in one of the houses as well yeah. at night. Um, obviously, it's a full recreation, so there's mm. no electricity or anything. Yeah. Ever the the town is lit purely mm. by candlelight, mm. oil lamps, um, and torches, mm. and um, so that was pretty scary, yeah. Yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I went, and so you you went as an adult, basically. Yeah, I um, went as a twenty-one-year-old person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I, I went um, a couple of years ago, I think. No, um, my university, St Andrews, has a kind of a twin university, which is uh, the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. Um, and Great college. So we have. Uh, I, I I think it's it's fascinating. It's like St Andrews went to America, looked for all, looked all over America, and found the college that is most like it yeah. to be to be twinned with. It's you know similarly small, very pretty, quite white, very, very seems like quite a privileged student body. Strangely uh, located. Yes. Um, so, uh, but but anyway, so there's a there's a regular research exchange research conference uh, between between these two institutions. So I went as part of that, but because I, I knew what Colonial Williamsburg was and I'm, I'm interested in it, uh, I, I made sure I had an extra day and I, I we, we got put up in, in, I think it might be called the Williamsburg Lodge, which might be the poshest hotel I've ever stayed in. It's it's in the, it's in the, dist- like the, the Colonial District as it were. Very St. Andrews. Yeah, very St. Andrews. Um, and I had a day walking around, going to various performances. 
remember I went to the hot chocolate cafe. They were serving oh. 16th century hot chocolate, yeah. 16th century hot chocolate, and the blacksmiths and all of those things. Yeah. But the performance that um, stood out most memorably for me was uh, they had a Q and A session with James Madison. Yes, um, I went to Patrick Henry. Yes, and there was it was really interesting because like and you know without wishing to. I was, I was about to say without wishing to stereotype. I'm going to stereotype because that's what we do. Um, stereotype those founding fathers. Yes. No, I'm not stereotyping the founding fathers. Um, <laughs> the car park had lots and lots of cars with Romney Ryan bumper stickers. Because mm. this was just after the, the, the 2012 elections, mm-hmm. so a couple of years after the 2012 elections. So, in other words, I'm not sure it was a particularly alternative audience mm-hmm. in, in in critical terms, in political terms or anything like that. I think the audience seemed quite mainstream middle America to mm-hmm. me. Um, and so there was a lot of sort of what from Britain looks like quintessential top-thumping American patriotism around, right? Um, and in that Q&A, there was a, the, pretty much the first question asked was someone asked James Madison to comment on and you know, should say say for the record, it's clearly an actor playing James Madison. Uh, most <laughs> of the actors, most of the actors are uh, history students of William and Mary, mm-hmm. and history PhD students typically. Um, so this this guy was playing James Madison, and he asked he he introduced himself and asked for questions. And the first first question was from an audience member who asked James Madison to talk about the great experiment of American democracy. And the guy asked everyone in the audience to raise their hands and then said, so if you're a woman, can you put your hands down, please? If you're not white, put your hands down. If you don't own X number of acres of land, put your hands down. If you don't have X amount of dollars, put your hands down. And then he said, at the very end, he said, so it turns out in this great American democracy, the only person who can vote is me. And you could hear a kind of audible gasp because this this wasn't the narrative of democracy that the audience expected to see, expected to hear. And there was a, a, a kind of clash between the political narrative of the audience and the political narrative of the performance, mm-hmm. where the audience were being encouraged to to consider the limits of the, the, the narrative of the nation state, as it were. Yeah. Um, which was a really, really interesting moment for me. Yeah, a lot of aspects of Colonial Williamsburg are designed mm. to do that. So mm. the witch trial mm. that we went to yeah. was all about, and it was quite subtly done. Yeah. Um, but it was more, I would say, historically nuanced yeah. than you know a lot of narratives you see in kind of mainstream sure. museums even. Sure. Um, and it was about it. It was about the category of woman. Yeah. And how gender and womanhood and femininity were constructed in the colonial period, and so it was a it was very much about fear. Yeah. It was about fear and othering and the unknown. Yeah. And how it it, ha- it took place at night. We were mm-hmm. there in the fall. It was quite mm-hmm. dark, and it was about how in this place where it's not thriving, mm-hmm. it's constantly under threat yeah. economically, but mm-hmm. also environmentally. Yeah. It has no, no kind of clear 
or kind of strategy for long-term mm. survival. Mm. There's no electricity. Mm. It's dark and it's cold. Yeah. The environment is quite harsh yeah. on the east coast of the United States. Yeah. And the buildings are creaky. And mm. you know, and so it's, it's very much about actually in a, a sort of Puritan-infused place. Yeah. Your fear of women is so socially constructed yeah. and your fear of religion and God yeah. is so ingrained in you yeah. because of the environment yeah. you live in. Actually, yeah. there's a really interesting thing to be said about why people will accuse women of being witches, yeah. women of a certain age. Yes. And yeah. this is the story that they're, that they're telling. It's yeah. not about... It, and it's it's not a, it, it wasn't an interesting performance in the sense yeah. that it's, it wasn't a captivating play yeah. it it wasn't very high tech obviously mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it it was very thought provoking yeah. and it was a sort of revisionist history mm. for people who would go there not expecting exactly. revisionist yes. history it's quite a regional yeah. place as you say yeah. you know yeah. Romney Ryan stickers all over. You know, you don't travel from California to go to Colonial Williamsburg, yeah. although I do think that yes. people should. Yeah. If you yeah. have the means, actually, mm. and yeah. you are going to go on vacation, yeah. I actually do think yeah. it's a, a worthwhile place. Yeah. And, you know, that there's a, there's a really weird political story going on there. Mm. Mm. It, was, it was fascinating that the other really powerful memory I have was I was walking, walking in uh, around the streets, you know. So this is a, a, a section of the town is the the colonial district, as it were, mm-hmm. and uh, pretty much everything in the colonial district is is managed by the the organization that runs it. But there's some some bits that aren't. So there's a church, for example, that looks like it dates from a similar period, if not quite quite as far back. And we can say a lot more about how the whole thing is reconstructed and. And not necessarily as authentic in skateboards as as it is presented as, but but anyway. So th- this church is not managed by the organisation, and it's run by volunteers of the church as opposed to the the, the uh, performers and, and actors who who are the the interpreters uh, employed by the organisation. And I walked into the church and I got talking to to some of the volunteers, and they asked me, "But you know, where have you come from?" And you know, trying to keep things simple, I said, "Edinburgh, Scotland." Um, and they looked really disappointed and said, oh, you are older than we are. And I was like, I'm not sure what, what, what to say. We are older than you are. There, there's, there's no other way to, to say this. And those, it was almost like she had heritage envy because pretty much everyone else was coming to this spot, spot in America as the oldest place. Yeah. Uh, and they're not used to dealing with visitors who are coming from somewhere that is seen as even older. Yeah, being out-olded. Yeah, and... That particular moment and the experience as a whole made me realize, sort of quite shamefully really, that as someone who spends as much time as I do thinking about post-colonial theory, I don't spend anywhere near enough time thinking about America as a post-colonial nation. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you start thinking of America as a post-colonial nation, so, so many things start to make more sense. For example, what seems to be from the outside America's obsession with the British royal family seems seems to get a particular meaning if you start thinking of America as a post-colonial nation as opposed to you know uh, an imperial nation for example yeah and it was it's it's that sort of the 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 way in which the setting up of of colonial Williamsburg as a thing 
the way that reminded you of the longer lasting shadows perhaps longer lasting than I certainly expected of America's colonized past mm-hmm. settler colonized past yeah yeah. yeah. Well, Colonial Williams, I mean, it's in the name, right? Yeah. And Colonial Williamsburg is, it's very, the time period is the period of decolonization. Yeah. And it's the, the United States was, was not the first. No. Haiti's decolonization mm-hmm. happened earlier. Yeah. Um, but it is one of the earlier yeah. decolonization moments. Yeah. and. Yeah. And that it's it's that upheaval, mm-hmm. that period of tension, yeah. and that kind of that death and rebirth yeah. type mm. atmosphere mm. that infuses all of Colonial Williamsburg. Yeah. And so, in a sense, it actually lends itself quite nicely to contemporary political Absolutely. debates about democracy. And so, mm. when James Madison, when mm. a, when a first person interpreter playing James Madison yeah. discusses what democracy was in the 1760s and 1770s yeah. in the United States. Mm. And then you you put that on top of the mm. audience there mm. now mm. and in a country that is having mm. very real discussions about what democracy should look mm. like, how mm. it should function mechanically, mm. and who is a legitimate leader of yeah. a democratic state. Right at the yeah. time, 2012, Barack mm. Obama was the first African-American president. Yeah. And it actually makes a lot of sense why a place mm. like Colonial Williamsburg mm. would mm. be of interest to yeah. a contemporary yeah. audience. And, and also, it, 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 for someone who is an outsider and doesn't necessarily, isn't an expert on American, contemporary American politics or American history, um, it was really interesting the way the narrative of Colonial Williamsburg was just as much about Virginia as it was about the United States. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there were, there were people asking questions about the Boston Tea Party, for example, and the the answers weren't about, weren't so much about the states coming together to, to fight off a common oppressor, but also states jockeying with, so Virginia and Massachusetts jockeying mm-hmm. with each other for, for primacy, in a way that, you know, 2012 was also, you know, around the time of the, the contemporary version of the Tea Party mm-hmm. uh, when it was at its height. So, at walking around listening to stories about the various states fighting in terms of states' rights with each other, mm-hmm. one couldn't help associate that with, with the Republican Party and the Tea Party activists of today and their de- selective deployment of states' rights. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the contemporary American political situation. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think leads us nicely to the theory for today. Yes, which is what? Theory for today is, uh, it's about reading the past and it's about the entanglements of narratives of the present and narratives of the past. Yeah, so the text, we'll we'll put a link in the description. Uh, There's a, uh, it's a chapter by Catherine Belsey in a book uh, called the book is called Reading the Past, uh, by edited by Tamsin Spargo, and Catherine Wells is talking about an, a, a living museum that she's not talking about Colonial Williamsburg, but another living museum which I've also been to uh, in South Wales uh, called Clankaikakfau. And apologies for my atrocious Welsh pronunciation, um, but it's a it's a, 
stately house, a stately home in, in, in South Wales, which is, dates from the English Civil War period, and it has been done up in, in a sort of quote-unquote authentic Civil War uh, style. Uh, and the, the conceit of the, the uh, attraction is the, the owner of the house is away, uh, but has given you a letter allowing you to enter the house and you are being shown around the house by the servants. Um, and it's really fascinating. You you know, uh, you know you go in, your ticket is a letter from the owner, and the first room you go into is the kitchen. Um, uh, Claire, my wife, and I went in, when we were, we were there together, and you go in and you go and sit down on the, in the, the benches in the kitchen, and the person who's, who's explaining the kitchen to you is the chef, playing the role of the chef. And Claire, Claire went in and sat down and crossed her legs, and, and the, the, the chef said, Oh, madam, don't, don't sit with your legs crossed. Only strumpets and whores sit with their legs crossed. <laughs> and from the, from, the, from, from the moment you enter, it is, you are in the past, right? That's the, yeah. that's the narrative. Uh, and what Catherine Belzer points out in her essay, and it, she's absolutely right here, is that the more the narrative becomes about recreating the, a direct access to the past, the more the present intrudes. So you can't help but seeing like fire escape signs everywhere. Mm-hmm. And you can't escape like you, the, the bits of the building which have had to be uh, renovated and not kept in line. You know, you see like electric light switches and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for, for all of the attempted uh, unmediated access to the past, for, for, that, for all of the attempts to create that narrative, you feel more and more disorientated because what you realize is there is no unmediated access, right? So um, they, they ask you, you know, where have you come from? And you say, I've come from Cardiff and Cardiff is like 20 miles away. And they said, oh, oh how many days did that, that take you? And there's a, there's a mischievous part of you that sort of keeps wanting to push it to see what it would take for them to break character. So like if you go like, I'm having a heart attack, call an ambulance. Well, they'd be like, oh, what's an ambulance? We don't know what an ambulance is. <laughs> there's, there's this, there is no common ground f- for, for any kind of an interaction between the interpreter, whether it's James Madison, Colonial Williamsburg, or the chef in this, in this stately home, and you. Because y- the more you try to talk, and the only way to do it, the only way to get 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 the place, as it were, is to to go with the flow and 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 accept the lie that they are from you know centuries ago. But the more you try to do that, the more you realize that there is this sort of unbridgeable gulf, and the paradoxically that unbridgeable gulf gets reinforced by the fact that everywhere around you you see echoes of the present. You see no smoking signs. You see, like, you know, uh, in the the ticket prices, it says like students and concessions, and you know things like that, which which wouldn't be the case. And it's that that the the fact that the present is always already there, uh, which makes it makes the past seem more and more inaccessible. And the harder they try to make the past accessible, the more inaccessible it paradoxically seems. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, Paul Ramino, <clears throat> the anthropologist mm. uh, at UC Berkeley, um, has written some really interesting things about time and about its role in mm. research methodology. Yeah. Like, yeah. the how do you 
in in research mm. how do you create the kind of a technical research mm. project that deals with this the slippery nature of mm. time and anthropology as a discipline is concerned very much with a static present yeah. in order to get at culture they have mm. to take to a certain degree the assumption that culture can be fixed in time mm. somehow mm. that if it's constantly changing every second then mm. you there is no way to study it because yeah. it takes time yeah. to study it yeah. so you yeah. have to take as a given that mm. over the course of the period you're doing your field work mm. which is you know normally 18 months for a, a phd mm-hmm. or um you know two years to five years mm. that during that time the culture that you're studying is constant yeah. and not changing mm. over the passage of time and mm. of course historians yeah. argue something very different about yeah. time mm. that that Time itself changes, and it, you know events mm. pass, and that causes mm. either cycles or mm. kind of ruptures and changes, mm. and, and that is what historians are interested mm. in. Mm. But that space itself kind of stays the same. Mm. The stage on mm. which and the trappings yeah. of yeah. kind of events mm. roughly stay the same. Mm. And so there's these two kind of different ways yeah. of dealing with time mm. and space. Yeah. Um, geographers slide in there. Yeah and like try and say a couple other weird mm, things mm, about it mm. but Rabineau comes up with this idea of the contemporary mm. which he says is rooted in a sort of a, and this is where the jargon comes mm. in modernity and mm. modernity not as like modern as in like mm. now mm. but modernity as a kind of historical period in which we think about the world and mm. the passage of time in a particular way yeah. it's this sort of post enlightenment period where mm. we think about the study of the world in particular mm. terms. Mm. And also we start to see things like museums. Mm. We start to collect stuff yeah. and put it on display yeah. and have this sort of shared narrative of this is our stuff. Mm. We look at it for these reasons. And there, those reasons are educational and political and social mm. and economic. And we have this sort of shared story about why we look at mm. stuff why we remember the past, mm. how we go about remembering the past. And we have this sort of shared, and that's the, the modern period. Yeah. Uh, basically collecting shit is yes. modernity but he says that that the modern has this sort of clear understanding of the past and and it is this idea that the 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 present is constantly moving into mm. the past and so yeah. he actually comes up with this idea of the contemporary and the contemporary mm. is where is a sphere it's like yeah. an arena in which we can think about the relationship between the past, the present, and the future. Mm. And there's a constant renegotiation of the Mm. three, so Mm. that certain things that we think of as being the present Mm. may at various times move into the Mm. past. They might be old things that are Mm. no longer the case Mm. now, and they can also move into the future. Mm. They can be things that we identify as being something that we want Mm. to see in our future. And this is the the sphere of the contemporary. Mm. And in this sphere of the contemporary, I think sits mm. this phenomenon of historical mm. tourism. Mm. So, I mean, you know, I know much much better than I do. Does do you get the sense that he's he's thinking of the negotiation when he's talking about the negotiation between past, present, and future? Mm-hmm. Is he talking of them as equally powerful? Because it seems to me that in most cases the present takes over, as it were that there is a <clears throat> there is a sense of loss in and we'll talk about talk much more about this in next week's episode when we do um the transition from industrial spaces to post-industrial spaces uh but 
there is a, a na- the the something seems to have shifted and something seems to have been lost in trans transforming a space of history whether it's a quote unquote a heritage site whether it is uh, whether it is uh, a site of national importance you know the when you were describing the modernity as a, as a time of collecting that the collecting that defines us as it were this this community building sense uh, that there's something about that that becomes lost be- when it becomes a site of tourism where you pay to get in mm. and you take photos and it becomes part of what you do on holiday along with let's say going to the beach or you know whatever mm-hmm. yeah the consumption bit. yeah yeah um so he he applies the contemporary to mm. anthropological research yeah. which is about and it came about because he was studying stuff that were cha- was changing too fast for yeah. standard ethnography to take account mm. of he mm-hmm. he's he studies science and he yeah. was working on projects around mapping the human genome and in the early 2000 the late mm. 90s early 2000s mm. that research was moving so quickly mm. that the the culture of the lab and the culture mm. of the kind of scientific arena in mm. which genome research was taking place was changing too fast for him mm. to write anthropologically about it mm. so he it was there was quite a material reason mm. for why he was thinking about the contemporary mm-hmm. and he was starting to incorporate historical methods mm-hmm. uh, it, into the work he was doing in order to account for stuff that was no mm. longer the case but yeah. had been the case and was meaningful. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he does less, he, because he's not applying it to tourism mm. and because he's not applying it to, to memory mm-hmm. as as an object that can be consumed. Yeah. I don't really know. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, he's a Foucault scholar, so he's all of his work is infused with mm. debates around power and mm. and um, the state. Mm. But I don't really. I'm not sure. Because yeah. the, the the specific example I was thinking of was um, what's called the cellular jail. I mean, you mentioned Foucault. There's a a wonderfully mm. Foucauldian place. So the cellular jail is in Port Blair, in on the Andaman Islands, in uh, in India. It's what what it's what. So the Andaman Islands was to British India, what Australia was to Britain. In other words, it's the it's the it's where you got sent off to be in prison. Yeah. Uh, mostly political prisoners, Indian nationalists, uh, freedom fighters struggling against uh, colonial rule were were uh, deported to the Andaman Islands in the way that Britain once deported its its uh, criminal and underclass to to Australia. Uh, it is now a museum. Uh, it has the reason I say it's particularly Foucauldian is it's uh, it follows Foucault's panopticon model of of prison. Not Foucault's model. Bentham, Jeremy Bentham's, Bentham's, model. Bentham's model. But, but, but Foucault, Foucault talks has, about it as a yes, form of state yes. surveillance. Um, so it's it has the it has the watchtower in the middle and uh, the the cells radiating outwards so that the the guards in the watchtower are able to see all the prisoners uh, at the same time, like a big wheel, like a big wheel, with with spokes, um, and it seems to me I mean there you know obviously there are multiple narratives and in a, in, a, in any any museum like that but there seem to me to be 
three narratives in particular that stood out. The first one was sort of a long-lasting general narrative of the museum itself, which is almost this is a space of pilgrimage for those who wish to pay respects to the anti-colonial struggle for freedom. Um, a lot of the a lot of the narrative was about the kind of torture that the prisoners underwent. Uh, there's a light and sound show which talks about it. It takes the perspective. There's a tree in the middle of the the prison compound, and it it it's from the perspective of the tree. The tree has been there long enough to be able to tell stories about what happened to the to the freedom fighters who were who were imprisoned there. Um, so that's that's the the overarching narrative. There is a subsection of the overarching narrative which has. Uh, a particular Hindu nationalist bent. We've mentioned Hindu nationalism many times on this podcast. Uh, one of the people who were who was imprisoned was this man called Veer Savalkar, who is the one of the ideological forefathers of, of Hindu nationalism. Uh, there, there are lots of stories uh, that you can go and research about uh, Savalkar basically signing uh, agreements with, with the British authority in order to get released much less heroic than than most of the other people who are there but Savarkar is the person who's idolized the most right his the the cell that he was he occupied is marked out separately as the place where he he was the airport in Port Blair is named after him so there is a there is a uh, a noticeable shift to uh, shift away from a commemorating a secular multi-religious freedom struggle to a uh, to giving priority to the to the Hindu nationalist uh, element of it uh, there's very little mention in in the museum for example of the non-hindus who who fought for independence so these are the two sort of contesting narratives that the museum itself presents and then there is perhaps the most terrific of the lot which is the narrative that the visitors bring to it uh, there were people who were taking selfies with some of the exhibits that depict torture. There were people who were, you know, pretending to stand inside the prison and taking selfies. And it was the most horrific, uh, explicit exa- uh, example that I've ever experienced of this kind of commodification of history, which um, sort of takes away any kind of politics of anti-colonial resistance and replaces it with a kind of neoliberal late capitalist politics of consumption and nothing else uh, and it was really really fascinating and say quite quite disturbing to see how uh, the narrative that is presented by an institution is is in conflict with the narrative constructed by the people visiting yeah yeah, yeah. What's really interesting, I mean, there are lots of jails um, and historic jails that Mm. are uh, sites of tourism and sites, not just of tourism, I think, because we could also include um, like pseudo pilgrimages as well as sites of of national and cultural significance for people. Um, neither of us have been to Robben Island, no. but that is an example where... Crumlin Road Jail in Belfast, which I've been to. And um, Kilmainham Jail in Dublin. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, Kilmainham Jail, interestingly, you're only yeah. allowed in as part of a tour. Yeah. Um, and so your your visit is yeah. much more... Well, it's, yeah. it's spatially determined yeah. 
by yeah. the the tour itself. Yeah. Um, but there's there are different approaches. Alcatraz is another one which yeah. wasn't a political prison, yeah. but is. A, a kind of site of significance. Yeah. Interestingly, the, the part of Alcatraz history that I find most interesting mm. is the native bit where yeah. it was occupied by uh, mm. native tribes yeah. uh, in the middle of the 20th mm. century for mm. a number of years. And there's mm. very little yeah. information about that, yeah. but I'm most fascinated by that yeah. part of it. But there's there are lots of jails that deal yeah. with this, deal with the fact that what they're selling is dark tourism in yeah. a way. Yeah. Um, not not nearly as dark in some cases as yeah. Um, yeah. you know, other other sites around the world. But there's something very problematic and distinctive about the way that visitors, mm. consumers engage with mm. the space itself. And it's very different yeah. from somewhere like Colonial Williamsburg. Um, which is performed. Yeah. So you have, when you have actors or first person interpreters or even a costumed guide who is, in a sense, translating the past for a present audience, you do something different with the past, I think, mm. rather than if you are visiting the site and you are at the site and you're engaging with the history of the site via an audio tour or a series mm. of plaques mm. and and informative mm. posters and that kind of thing that they're they they create the space in mm. a different way mm. place making and space mm. making that's the geography yeah. jargon mm. and there's also something about the proximity to time mm. Mm. um 20th century history yeah. uh alcatraz comanum jail yeah. um it, you know, these are all within living memory yeah. for people. Mm. And the history itself is yeah. easier to translate, I feel yeah. like, in a sense, because yeah. we're closer to it. Yeah. Um, you know, there were airplanes in the 1940s, yes. for example. Yes. Electricity was yes. around. So yes. in terms of our proximity to the yeah. past, it's much closer. But somehow that makes the, 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 the loss associated with commodification even more... Horrific, right? So it's quite stark, I, yeah. I wasn't able to go to Alcatraz uh, when we went to San Francisco. We we left the booking till too late, and there wasn't space. Uh, so we did a boat to. I did warn you? You did. <laughs> I, we, we 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 did a boat to. So we saw it from the distance, but we weren't able to get off uh, and and actually walk around it. But what was fascinating and quite horrific is along the in in all of the souvenir shops along the. Uh, around the port where you get on the boat from uh, they're selling dolls in in you know black and white striped prison costume mm -hmm. and the way in which the whether it was deserved or not the pain of and suffering of the prisoners mm -hmm. becomes something that can be bought and sold uh, and that one one of the most powerful pieces of artwork I've seen uh, was this was this going back a few years now? By uh, it was an artwork, piece of artwork by Alicia Framis. I'll we'll, we'll uh, mm -hmm. put it in the description. She has a has a has an installation artwork called Project Guantanamo, and the the idea of the the installation piece is one day when they eventually close Guantanamo Bay, it probably will become a museum. Mm -hmm. So what will that look like? And yeah. she has, you know, installations of with orange jumpsuits and 
fridge magnets and fake postcards and the kind of souvenirs that you might be able to buy in a, in a gift shop like that. And it just encapsulates this this the, this transformative process where something goes from being a symbol of real current contemporary political conflict, matter of life and death, to a, a, a commodity that is circulated within a capitalist, late capitalist economy. And what happens to that? You know, what happens when uh, an orange jumpsuit stops being something that actual prisoners actually wear in in a prison to something that can be bought as a costume or something that can be bought as a you know to, to put on your fridge and how comfortable we all are with this transformation and how how used to we are so we don't even question it in in this move from I say from from a, a, a moment of political conflict a thing that has specific political meaning to you know a, a, a holiday souvenir yeah i mean f from an educational perspective yeah. i think it's more nuanced than that yeah um and i think it's more complicated i also think that we as academics are a certain type of visitor mm. and what i think what i find really interesting and you mentioned when you visited colonial williamsburg they said uh that oh you're from an older place you're yeah. older than we are yeah. Uh, Edinburgh is very old yes. and most of the historical tourism there's lots of it here yeah. in Scotland we have yeah. multiple government and nonprofit organizations yeah. that are tasked with protecting and preserving mm. our heritage and yeah. sharing it with the public yeah. um, and I think for the most part they do a great job yeah. I really like our, our organizations and I've mm. you know done some work with them um, we have a ton of history here and mm. it is really old and a lot of the history in Edinburgh mm. is old history the history that gets sold to tourists in right. particular, um, but also to you know us locals, right? We take our families mm -hmm. there when we're when mm -hmm. they're in town, you know, um, is really old, mm. older than the United States, yeah. really, and you know it comes up to the nineteenth century. That's yeah. about the sort of the logical end okay. point of British history. It yeah. ends in the mid nineteenth century yeah. with Queen Victoria, yeah. and then we ignore. The rest, unless you visit the Churchill War Rooms in London. Yeah, yeah. And in Edinburgh, we have a huge number of, mm. of attractions. Uh, my personal mm. favorite is Mary King's Close. I also really like the Surgeon's Hall Museums, yeah. which have just had a revamp and yeah. are all newly done, yeah. and I find them really fascinating. Surgeon's, um, Surgeon's Hall Museum. Our, our castles are pretty good, too. Yeah. Edinburgh and Stirling Castle, especially, mm. are really great. Um, extremely closely managed and maintained history yeah. a very curated but yeah. also a very careful preservation yeah. so technically chemically yeah. uh, art history and art conservation wise they're all mm. you know extremely closely managed but we also have this really interesting tourist attraction that is not managed by the government is run mm. by a massive corporation mm. uh, the dungeons and full disclosure I know a lot of people who work at the yeah. dungeons but I've never worked there mm. and I make no money and I'm mm. not being sponsored by Merlin. Um, the dungeons, there's a whole suite of them around the globe. Uh, there's And there's new ones every yeah. few years. There's now one in San Francisco, yeah. apparently, which I've never heard of and I've never been to. Um, but the dungeons are really... Yeah. I think they're a fascinating place because they're yeah. kind of like Williamsburg. Mm. They're kind of like Mary King's Close. Mm. They're kind of like Alcatraz. Yeah. 
but like also not because mm. they're basically run by actors mm. actors under the age of 35 yeah. essentially like mm. really you know they're not academics yeah um they're working professional trained actors and they write a lot of their own shows mm. they get stuff from the corporation but they also write a lot of their own mm. stuff they're all sort of locally tinged but they are also beholden to the kind of norms yeah. and standards and budgets yeah. of the mm. the central corporation mm. um and they work on sets and they have costume right mm. they, they work like a theater essentially mm-hmm. a weird yeah. kind of theater mm. and what they're doing is really strange because mm. the audience is really different from a an audience of historians mm-hmm. or an mm-hmm. audience of history nerds or an audience of kind of environmental nerds yeah, yeah. or, you know, there are people looking to be entertained. Yeah. And if you're thinking about history as a story to be told mm. and something to be used to entertain yeah. rather than to educate, yeah. what happens to it? Yeah. And essentially, if you want to do that, you hire a bunch of actors, put them yeah. in costumes. And yeah. So you go to the dungeons, and the Edinburgh dungeons, the only dungeons I've ever been to, yeah. the Edinburgh dungeons, are they tell a bunch of local stories, mm. but like in the most history-like possible way yeah. you can imagine. So it's as if where Williamsburg mm. is giving you a bunch of history and a yeah. bunch of facts and like mm. really changing the way that you think about history mm-hmm. with a veneer of the past, yeah. a sort of past-like dressing, yeah. the Dungeons is doing the opposite. It's giving mm. you theater, mm. a like performance, a yeah. show, yeah. with a veneer of history. Yeah. And what they're doing is actually really hard. So it's, yeah. it's easy for us to kind of look at it at an attraction like the Dungeons, like, oh, it's history, like, go to American yeah. schools, yeah. Yeah. Story, whatever, whatever. Yeah. It's easy for us to say yeah. that. But actually, to incorporate... Burke and Hare and Surgeon's Hall Museum yeah. and the relationship between um, the kind of history of medicine and medical yeah. advancement and medical research in Edinburgh with, you know, criminal activity mm. and body mm. snatchers yeah. and murderers, you know, it's actually quite it's difficult, yeah. but yeah. they sort of, they do it. Yeah. And the visitor, mm. and it's all for the particular type of person who will go to the dungeons. Yeah. yeah. Also, they have rides, mm. which I find fascinating. Yeah. It's it's interesting. Like, I I I'm, I completely agree with the way you you set up the distinctions between Colonial Williamsburg and and the dungeons, uh, but overarching across all the examples we've uh, we've been looking at, there is something similar in terms of putting a putting an imaginative version of the past to work in the present, right? And that work can be educational. It can be entertainment. It can be commodification and, and, and commercialization or political, or, or political for nation state yeah. building but but it's across all of these different purposes and across all of these different forms it's and maybe, maybe it's easier for me to say this as a non-historian but it seems to me that it's putting putting the past whether it's quote-unquote objectively true whether it's quote-unquote imaginative uh, putting a version of the past to work in the present in a way that says much more about the present than it does about the past. It seems to me that, that that's that's what connects all of these 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 things. The the work it's doing is different. Sometimes it's, you know, rights and entertainment and do taking very difficult topics and 
presenting them, not least presenting them in a family-friendly way, right? The dungeons, the dungeons have to cater to a a wide wide gap in generations. Like it's it's a kids' attraction, so you, you have to make it kid-friendly. Uh, so that's one version of it. Colonial Williamsburg is another version where it's trying to educate its audience in in terms of a, a particular narrative of national history. Uh, the Cellular Jail is a, is another version of it, which is creating a political narrative to help construct the nation state. But it seems they're all doing the overarching logic, the physics of it is similar, where it's putting the past to work in the service of the present. Yeah, but what is history? Yeah. That is ultimately the project yeah. for historian, right? That's yeah. how we justify yeah. doing history. Yeah. Because without a concern for the present, you know, why it's the past. They're yeah. all dead. Who cares? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that that is ultimately the purpose of doing history more generally. Not sure all historians would agree. No, but I think historical geographers do. Yeah, yeah. Historical geographers, this mm. is one mm. of the motivating reasons yeah. for doing historical geography, and it's something that we mm. talk about. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I put it yeah. in my PhD thesis as a, yeah. a yeah. tick box. Um, next week, yes. we will talk more about the transition from industrial spaces to consumer and commodity spaces and the role of tourism in mm. that. Um, we'll talk more about different sites and different yes. sites. Um, tell us if you liked this episode, if you disagree. Yeah, tell us if you have any experiences of going to particular spaces that we haven't covered or, yeah, or if we have. Yeah, if our, if our theory doesn't apply yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to other spaces, yes. if we've had missed yeah. stuff. Let us know. Uh, let us know on Twitter or iTunes or SoundCloud. And we'll catch you next week. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you.